This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Opponents of the death penalty really thought this was the year Colorado would get rid of capital punishment. After all, Democrats have total control. But on Tuesday, that effort came to an end for now. The problem, says the bill's sponsor, Senator Julie Gonzalez of Denver, was process. I ask that this bill be laid over because I believe wholeheartedly that the way in which we treat each other through this process is as important as the policy itself. So when this bill comes back next session, there will be nothing left to hide behind except this abhorrent, terrible practice. Those who wish to keep the death penalty, including a Democratic state senator whose son's killers are on death row, were frustrated with the bill's debut. Its first hearing came just two days after it was introduced, and there were accusations that that was meant to suppress the voices of victims' families because they didn't get much notice to testify. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry has been talking with affected families, prosecutors, and Allison joins us. Hi. Hi, Ryan. You've spoken with a lot of district attorneys Had they taken an official position on the repeal effort? Well, no, there's not consensus among the state's 22 prosecutors as a group. So, you know, they're neutral overall. But every DA has his or own opinion on this, as you can imagine. Now, it's been a decade since the last time a Colorado jury agreed to impose the death penalty. Why would some prosecutors still want it? Well, I mean, it's about justice for some. I mean, I think that was definitely the case with the Aurora Theater shooter, for example. But, you know, that's a great example of how it's not all in the power of judges and prosecutors. The jury didn't agree to the death penalty in that case. But I, I will also say that prosecutors also see it as a legal tool, and they have many, many examples of how it has been used in recent history. Uh, Chris Watts, the Frederick man who murdered his family, was spared the death penalty because he took a plea bargain for life in prison without parole. The same with Scott Ostrom, the man who killed three strangers at a Thornton Walmart in 2017. Uh, The Adams County District Attorney and I had this long conversation about how he got him in prison for consecutive life sentences because he threatened the death penalty and defense lawyers offered life in prison instead. Here's George Brockler, the Arapahoe County District Attorney, pretty graphically describing a murder that was resolved with a plea of life in prison without parole after he said he was going to go seek the death penalty. Kevin Lyons was the guy who down in uh, the Greenwood Village area shot his wife, chased her out into the street, and when a good Samaritan doctor tried to save her life, he went over and shot him to death to keep him from doing that, and then opened fire on the police. That is a case that was on track to go to trial for the death penalty, and it also resolved with a plea of guilty to go to prison forever. So without the death penalty, there could be some who argue it would be harder to get those pleas, Um, and of course they would all go to trial, which spends a lot of county resources, takes energy, and also takes an emotional toll on victims' families. Interesting. So the death penalty as leverage Uh, But you said prosecutors are divided on capital punishment. For those who want it repealed, aren't they then giving up this potential tool? Well, I mean, I don't think they see it that way. Let's just first hear from Beth McCann. She's a Denver district attorney who's been an outspoken advocate against the death penalty and vowed when she was campaigning for that office that she'd never seek it. I don't agree that it should be considered a tool or a plea bargaining chip. No, we shouldn't be filing a higher charge in order to just try to get a plea. Life in prison 
is life in prison. I mean, that's not a freebie. Beth McCann joined the Boulder DA, Mike Doherty, to push for a repeal at the Capitol. But those two are the only ones on the anti-death penalty table. Most of the prosecutors at the Capitol that day um, I talked to, they supported the death penalty and argued against its repeal. And one of the most influential opponents to repealing the death penalty at the Capitol is Senator Rhonda Fields, whose son was murdered. But of course, this issue splits the families of victims as well, Allison. Yeah. And actually, I attended a rally put on by the NAACP uh, late last week with victims' families, all of whom opposed the death penalty. And a lot of them, it was about closure. One person I talked to was Alice Randolph. Her son was murdered. um, His name was Lauren Anthony Collins in 2010 in Aurora. The prosecutor at the time came to her and said he'd seek the death penalty, but she declined. And she said she didn't really want to go through the multi-year process that the death penalty takes. Now I have nine grandchildren and we're living life and that's another thing like my grandchildren, they they know Uncle Lauren with the pictures and the stories instead of knowing that we have to go to this court for something that they weren't even here on this earth for, you know. Right. So have a memory yeah, 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 that's what it's about. It's all about memories. Goodness. I I imagine that position may sometimes put victims' families at odds with prosecutors, though. It does. You know, in fact, uh, I talked about the Aurora Theater shooting earlier, and half of the victims in that case wanted the death penalty, and about half of them didn't. You know, and and as we know, the district attorney at the time, George Brockler, sought the death penalty and didn't get it. So, you know, that happens. And I will have to say that some victims— change their positions over time. Interestingly, I talked to Robert Ottaby, whose son, Eric Ottaby, was a prison guard in Lyman, and he was murdered by an inmate in 2002. And, you know, Robert Ottaby, his father, was initially very much in favor of the death penalty, but a few more correctional officers got killed by other inmates, and he realized it wouldn't really necessarily change anything. It wasn't going to be a deterrent for future crimes. And then the prosecutor, oh, yeah, we got to kill this fool. we got to kill him to protect other officers. It didn't help the officer that was killed after my son. They said it's a deterrent. It didn't deter that guy one step. He tried to kill two officers. And there's so much untruth that goes on in favor of the death penalty. All right, the complicated picture around the death penalty, which for the time being will remain the law of the land in Colorado. Allison, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry. Again, backers of a bill to abolish capital punishment say they'll reintroduce the legislation next year. Colorado incarcerates about 20,000 people in its state prisons. It's about the population of Golden or Montrose. But unless you have a loved one behind bars it's rare to hear from inmates. And that's why tomorrow, actors will perform short stories written by incarcerated men and women in Colorado. The event's called May My Words Fly Free. Before we talk about it, let's hear one of these stories. It comes from an inmate at the Sterling Correctional Facility. It's called No Okra, read here by an actor. We were told there would be a vegetable garden. In the corner of the yard on the west side of the prison, we turned over the soil on a spring afternoon. We hoed and tilled until we were sweating and sore from our labor. But I loved the work because I knew it held the promise of an eventual harvest if we cared for the seedlings and watered the plot. The weather up here is dry and windy, alternately scorching or harsh and cold. These would be brave vegetables. As my knees grew sore from kneeling in the large plot, 
I began to hope we would be growing okra. In the library, I looked at a book that explained how okra grows. It said, plant okra in fertile, well-drained soil. Be sure to space plants one to two feet apart to give them ample room to grow. A few weeks later, it was summer. Staking the tomatoes and other plants, it occurred to me that while we are all adult men, we don't have much room to grow here. We aren't spaced nearly far enough apart to flourish here. And the light inside is harsh and constant. In this garden, I wanted these vegetables to have a chance. My grandmother told us that okra originated in ancient Ethiopia and the seeds were often used as a coffee substitute. During the Civil War, my grandmother explained that it was common to sell okra brew to the white soldiers, Confederate and Yankee. It was cultivated in North Africa and then the Middle East and, of course, in Georgia. It had made a big trip to the New World and to my childhood dinner table. (laughs) People may give okra a bad rap and call it slimy, but we had a one-pot stew called gumbo that my heart and taste buds yearn for today. It had rice and tomatoes and onions all boiled together, and on a lucky day, there might have been some chicken in that pot, too. I daydream of okra as I work in the garden, and I feel regret because we cannot grow okra in this garden. But I still have that old memory around me. I wish we could grow okra, and I could see it grow tall and spread out its leaves and flowers. We grow zucchini instead. (laughs) Pretty soon, we've got two-foot monster zucchinis everywhere. We named the biggest ones Bandino and Che. We watch every day to see who has grown larger. Six weeks later, looks like Bandino has won. We never see him again because some other men who work in the garden have removed them and taken them to the kitchen to cook. No Okra by an inmate at the Sterling Correctional Facility on Colorado's Northeastern Plains and read by actor Lawrence Anthony Curry of Stories on Stage. Now, that piece will be featured in an event tomorrow called May My Words Fly Free, which showcases the writing of prisoners across Colorado. We're going to talk about this with Karen Lizay, founder of the nonprofit Words Beyond Bars. Hi, Karen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. And you're careful not to reveal the name of the inmate who wrote No Okra or any of the other pieces. I wonder why that's important. That's a critical piece because anonymity ensures that regardless of who winds up in the audience listening to these amazing pieces of work, should there be somebody who has been affected by a crime Um, a victim, a family member, it becomes a controversial emotional issue and better to keep it completely anonymous than uh, create any kind of painful experience for someone. What struck you about the short stories that are chosen for this event? Well, when we first imagined this event, I did talk to the men and women in our six facilities where um, our book program is happening. And yeah, let me just say Words Beyond Bars is essentially like a prison book club across Colorado. It is a prison book club, and it's incredibly benign, and it's small and mighty and powerful and transformative, if I do say so. So you, th- these are perhaps literarily inclined individuals, and you ask them about writing pieces. Yes, and I think that's something that people don't understand is that even in a prison, in a concrete, enclosed classroom, we laugh, we engage, we show our vulnerability. And as these book club 
people begin to open up a little bit and feel that they're in a safe place, there's a lot of creativity and humor and imagination that I invited them to use in writing. I gave them a caveat from day one that I really wasn't interested in getting any writing about uh, razor wire and gloom and doom and um, eight-by-eight-foot cells because that would feed into the stereotype that the audience might be expecting. And I said, can you summon humor? Can you summon uh, something that's funny or warm or engaging, a memory or a metaphor. I mean, a the, metaphor. The, the crowded okra metaphor is so perfect. And they are bursting with metaphors. And when we talk about books, what seems incredibly simple, a plot, a setting of a story, um, a character's mistake or poor judgment about something within the plot, they're rooting for that guy. They are understanding people make mistakes. They understand split-second decisions that affect your life. And so through a simple novel, one minute they're talking about the book, and the next minute they're talking about their lives. So give me an example of another story. Well, there's one gentleman. I don't work with people who are doing very lightweight crimes. These are the bad guys. These are the murderers and embezzlers. And um, these people have done some pretty horrific things. So I never want to be understood to be excusing them or minimizing what they've done. And yet what I enjoy, what is rewarding and has come out in these stories is their humanity. And um, for instance is sadly a young man who, who killed his mother. And he ended his mother's life because he was being abused severely, and it's a pretty gruesome story. And yet what he was able to do through his poetry was explain that despite the fact that he had taken his mother's life, he, in fact, ironically, misses her terribly, which, of course, plays into what we all know about children love the abuser often. It's the only thing they've known, and so it's a pretty tough gamble to take someone's life. This person is serving a long sentence and yet is working out his own pain and his own remorse through his stories and poetry. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Karen Laze, founder and executive director of the nonprofit Words Beyond Bars. Uh, We're speaking ahead of an event called May My Words Fly Free, Reflections from Colorado's Incarcerated Populations. What was the effect on the prisoners who wrote these pieces? Did you see any kind of, you know, light bulb moment? Well, they're overjoyed. What I tell them very, very often is that they're not forgotten. We as a society are definitely changing. We are aware of prisons in a way that have never, it's never been on the forefront of our culture the way it is right now. And so in my own tiny corner of my classroom at Sterling, I was up there yesterday, I just see what happens when 12 men sit in a circle and feel comfortable and safe and respected and validated. That's all I'm doing. And they teach me just as much as I'm teaching them. What is something you've learned? About life or, I don't know, literature, writing? 
Well, literature is is my bread and butter. I've been a librarian for decades, but more than anything else, I think that my big takeaway has been that anyone who embraces the notion of us and them is barking up the wrong tree. There's no us and them. That is to say, the bars of a prison, the concertina wire, naturally sets up the dualism of me on the outside and them on the inside. Absolutely. You've learned that that's a false construct? It's a safe construct to say, I could never do that. Only a monster would do that. The truth is, many of these people, I I can't give you a percentage, committed their heinous crimes when they were under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So by the time they get, they're not getting treatment necessarily, but they're being removed from their demon, they are actually... I loathe the word normal, but I would say they're responsible, caring human beings. Does it make you think there but for the grace of God go I? Yes, because we can all understand humanity better when we realize we're all capable of a mistake. And um, everyone is deserving of a second chance, and everyone can change. And I couldn't do this work if I didn't believe that. Do you believe that about the Aurora Theater shooter? Wow. Um, Now you're really challenging me. What I would say to answer that, and that's a very, very tough question, is not everyone is able to find redemption. Not everyone is free of mental illness and madness. My heart is beating as I think about Sandy Hook and school shootings and, and those kinds of tragedies. And I think that we're getting into a really complicated area. So I would probably say to you, no, that the Aurora shooter is not in in the world that I'm discussing. And the reason that I don't spend a lot of time dwelling in that place is because that is the extreme, 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 and will sacrifice all the other people who don't fit into that category. A little earlier, you mentioned the recidivism rate how often people return to prison. It's somewhere around 50% in Colorado, meaning half of the people do something that lands them behind bars again. Have you seen that play out over the years? I have seen that play out. One of the distinctions I have to make about our program that makes us a bit of, I'm a bit of an outlier when it comes to the whole subject of reentry. Reentry is the darling of the prison world right now. When you leave prison... When you leave prison, when you prepare for release, the state is very focused on that time period to prepare people for success when they are released. So there are services and resources, and there's a lot of money and energy going in to trying to affect change in that period before release. And I think I'm somewhat alone in feeling that reentry or release, whatever you want to call it, really has to happen The day somebody arrives in prison, they should be receiving all these services and all these life-changing opportunities, such as education, much, much earlier. Um, We read a book down at the Territorial Correctional Facility um, about two weeks ago. This is where? Territorial's in Canyon City. In Canyon City. It's the oldest prison in Colorado. Okay. 
And I have 12 men in the group there, and we read kind of a bestseller, which I don't usually do, Educated by Tara Westover, which is the story of, it's a memoir of a woman who grows up in a survivalist-type family in Idaho, pretty wacky parents, a lot of abuse that goes unnoticed, and she has no formal education. It's a riveting book. And I like to bring the books that you and I, we're all reading out in the outside world into the prison. So the book is about education and the value of education, especially for a young woman who has no access to it. I was very, very interested in the conversation that resulted. Um, I've never rarely seen the 12 guys in that group so animated, so engaged, and so moved by a memoir. They often make fun of memoirs and say they're for girls, which (laughs) is just one of our great arguments. The point being that one of the men who is serving a life sentence said that he is taunted by other incarcerated men who say, you're wasting your time getting educated. You're never getting out. What are you doing in that book club? You're never getting out. And I was very moved by the fact that he said that he answers by saying, we set the tone for the entire prison facility, the people who are serving life. If it becomes a lot cooler to carry around a paperback novel than a weapon or something illegal, then that is sending a message. And when four people are sitting in chow discussing the book of the week, um, something's happening. And those are people who may one day be released. Right. The ones who are impressionable. Absolutely. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Karen Laze is founder of the nonprofit Words Beyond Bars based in Denver. Tomorrow evening, Inmates' Words will come to life in an event called May My Words Fly Free. It takes place at the Studio Loft at the Ellie Calkins Opera House in Denver. It's a collaboration with Stories on Stage and the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Tuesday was Equal Pay Day. It marks how much longer women had to work to earn what men earned last year. CU Boulder researcher Stephanie Johnson studies the gender wage gap and biases women face in the workplace. She speaks now with my colleague Avery Lill about her most recent findings, which have to do with looks. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, good morning, Avery. There is this old idea in psychology that people benefit from the what is beautiful is good effect. In other words, beautiful people often have more positive interactions with other people. But your study asks if that principle holds for women in the workplace. What did you find? Yeah, so first of all, you're right on. For the most part, women do benefit from their looks and men generally always benefit from their looks at the workplace or out of the workplace. But we see with women that there's a slightly more nuanced view of attractiveness at work. And usually that manifests as a perception of a lack of competence for women. But in this study, we looked at the potential for attractive women to create an uneasiness in others that causes them to be perceived as less truthful, trustworthy, and as a result, uh, more likely to want to be fired. And that's other people wanting to fire them? Yes, exactly. And it's not just men who judge attractive women harshly. Your study showed that other women are less likely to trust them, too. Yeah, you're right. So 
we really expected that this would be an effect for men because our underlying theory was that men might fear the seductress, the femme fatale. Um, but we saw the same effect for women. And it might have slightly different explanatory mechanisms, but we didn't find any differences. So these are a lot of variables that you're teasing out. Tell me more about how you actually studied these biases. Sure. Um, so we used a series of studies where we manipulated someone giving news about a business, and it could be a man or a woman, and we manipulated their attractiveness with photos. And then we looked at how people perceived them on a survey questionnaire. Uh, in one of the studies, we manipulated people's sense of sexual security. They had to think back about a time where they were in a romantic relationship where they were really secure or one where they felt insecure, and then do the same ratings. And what we found was pretty shocking. When people felt secure, they didn't have this negative view of attractive women. Interesting. And But attractive men didn't see that drop in trust. Why do you think that was? Right. So attractive men, we really found no effect of their appearance. Um, I think that... For men in the workplace, it's just more normal. We expect men to be in the workplace. We don't expect them to have gotten where they are through subtle manipulation tactics or sleeping their way to the top the way people have those negative stereotypes for women. So for men, it's it's just fine. They're, if a man's attractive or he's unattractive, people see him as pretty equally trustworthy. And did you ask the people in your study why it was that they were perceiving women that way? Or did you have a sense of why it was attractive women had that drop in trust? Yeah, that's a good question. We couldn't find any explanation that people could articulate. And I think the reason for that is that this is really operating at a subconscious or unconscious level. No one says out loud, right? That woman's really attractive. I don't trust her because of her looks. I think it's you interact with someone, they make you feel slightly uneasy, maybe your pulse increases, maybe you're just a little bit nervous. And then as a result, you might misattribute that to some other cause, like they're being dishonest. Um, they've lied to me in some way. And so then you more negatively view them. And I think you even tied it to a sort of evolutionary perspective. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, for sure. That is one of the possible mechanisms. It's really hard to measure, right? We can't measure evolution. But um, potentially, over evolutionary time, there's been some argument that women are um, – their main goal in terms of reproductive success is to have their children make it through and grow up and pass on their genes again. But for men, the evolutionary argument's a little bit different, that they're – supposed to mate with as many people as possible to spread their seed widely. And so the biggest mistake a man can make on evolutionary time is to um, be cuckolded. So raise a child of another man that's not their genetic child. And so that might make men more wary of really attractive women. It's a, I mean, it's a stretch. We definitely cannot measure that. And there's other explanations. But that's just one of the potential arguments that have been made for why people feel untrusting of attractive women. So you're studying these stereotypes that are often unconscious and maybe go back for millennia for reasons why they might exist. 
but it's studying, it, it's following this myriad of different reasons why women, women are discriminated against at work, for reasons ranging from obesity to assertiveness. Women in Colorado make a median of $8,000 less than men, and I think that it can start to feel like pile-on. Why do you think it's important to keep studying this from different angles? Right. So really, most of my research focuses on not just describing the sad potpourri of facts and uh, challenges that women face, but really looking at ways to mitigate those effects. So in this case, we found if people felt more secure, then they were less likely to discriminate against women. And I don't think we're going to sit at work and try to make people feel sexually secure. Um, But it does point to this possibility that if people felt more secure in the workplace generally, they were in an organization that supported them and um, really tried to make them feel good about themselves rather than constantly berating them, that maybe people would be less discriminatory against women. So there's this idea that even if maybe people recognize their bias or just recognize their insecurity that fuels their bias, that could help. Well, and that's definitely true. So in some of my past research, I found that people were most biased against women when they didn't see that they were being biased. So I had I manipulated whether women raised the possibility that there was bias going on. So they said, you know, I don't look like your typical person in this job, or I am a woman in an industry that's predominantly male. And I found that vastly reduced the negative bias against women. And I think it's just because it's naming the elephant in the room, right? It's like, wow, the person, this is, she said she's a woman. Uh, that means maybe I'm being biased against her because she is a woman. And when you put that out there, it means that those biases are a lot less likely to affect your behavior. Hmm, That is fascinating research. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Stephanie Johnson is an associate professor of management at the CU Leeds School of Business. She spoke with CPR's Avery Lill about biases women face in the workplace. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. A new Colorado Public Radio podcast explores how a shooting 20 years ago changed the country. I want to bring you up to date at the shooting at Columbine High School. I love the community of Littleton. The prayers of the American people are with you. Now survivors of the attack have their own kids. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. And a whole scientific field has emerged to stop the next shooter. Search for Since Columbine wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado will celebrate some of its best writers next month at the Colorado Book Awards. In the history category, author Polly Bugros McLean is nominated for her biography of the first black graduate of what's now the University of Northern Colorado and the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. Her name was Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones. She was the daughter of freed slaves. But despite her remarkable life, she was buried in an unmarked grave. That didn't sit well with Polly McLean, who's a professor at CU. And Polly, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You spent years crisscrossing the country to learn everything you could about this woman who lived to 105. Why were you so captivated by Lucille? 
it started off with an article from a newspaper that said that a black woman who was educated, a daughter of the state of Colorado, was buried in an Omar grave, as you said. And I went, no, that's not correct in the, you know, as we're coming to the end of the 20th century. It has to be a mistake here. And that started me on, on the quest. And the first thing I did was went, go to Fairmont Cemetery, where she was buried. In Denver. In Denver. And looked her up and also looked up the fact that she had also bought in uh, 1955, she bought her tombstone. She bought a spot to be buried. And uh, she bought a headstone, and that was destroyed. And she lost that. You know, two years before she died, they would sell her plot. And you wanted really to understand the yeah. story of her life, uh, not just her death, and the fact that she really was not well known. She was not well known, and that what happens uh, to history often is that we tend to focus on those who make the nightly news, those who have, uh, who, who we don't tell the full story of those who are the bottom of the historical plane. And I wanted to resurrect her and bring her out. As I mentioned, there are a lot of firsts in Lucille's life. So the, this first generation born after slavery Again, the first black graduate of what's now UNC, the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. And yet I understand that you struggle with the term first. I did. Uh, That there's a lot that word doesn't capture. What do you mean? First to begin with, first has some both negative and positive connotations. Okay. You know, the first world war that we've had, what, how many people suffered and died? You know, you might say certain things came out as a result. But that first category really did bother me. And it often shuts down further research. Once you've got your first, I mean, why go any further? Ah, why uh, look at all of the folks who paved the way to make that first possible? And, I think and they get lost in the annals of history, you know, the dustbins of history, as we call it. And that's what really triggered all of this. And yet there is some positivity as well associated with firsts. And there were some important firsts in Lucille's life. Yeah, it was. Um, She majored in German, the first African-American woman at the University of Colorado to major in German, which was quite impressive at that time. Why Quite important. The black intelligentsia prior to World War I really had a great feeling and compassion for Germany. And apparently Germany related to them in ways that were not clear or understood by others. So they went there to school. They studied in German. Du Bois was her idol. And he spent two years in Germany. As in W.E.B. W.E.B. Du Bois, Uh yeah. So the German became a real important, and the historically black colleges and universities in the United States, um, those that offered degrees and, you know, not just technical skills, all had German departments. And today there are two that still have German in uh, their, their curriculum. Now, she wanted to teach, but she could not land a teaching gig in Colorado right. after her graduation from what is now UNC. Why not? Well, one of the things is that you got a free education and you had to pay back. So immediately she wanted to get a job. And the only job that she apparently could apply for was in Maitland, Colorado. 
Maitland. Maitland, Colorado. Where mining is that? town about 163 miles away from here. Okay. Uh, she applied. In fact, the Maitland newspaper ran an article in 1905 about this very intellectual and bright black student that graduated from, which is now UNC. The teacher's college. That's right. Would be applying for a job. Uh, <laughs> but it never happened. And she didn't waste any time. And that was one of her characteristics. She didn't take no for an answer. So immediately she found a job at Arkansas Baptist College in Little Rock and ended up going there right after graduation. Is it that she just found it difficult as a black woman to find a teaching gig in Colorado? Yes, because we would not. Uh, that that was certainly a problem, even though we did have some black teachers before 1905. Huh. That was the, the only system. community in Colorado, though, that would even... Think about offering her a job. Yeah, Denver, for instance, would not. No, she could not get in anywhere else. So, and then they turned her down. They turned her down. Yeah. And then Colorado loses her for That's a right. time to Arkansas. For, for Yeah, they lose her for about 42 years. Now, at CU Boulder later on, she apparently did not walk at graduation. Right. Why not? Uh, I interviewed um, one of her relatives that was still alive, and I was told that a young white female student came up to her and says, Hi, Lucy, here's your diploma. I'll be your stand-in. And um, she never walked. Do you think that was about race? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it, it's hard to document some of this at this time other than the oral history that I've received from relatives about this. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Polly Bugros McLean of CU Boulder about her new book, Remembering Lucille. It is about Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones, who was the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder, the first black graduate of what is now the University of Northern Colorado. And Polly, I want to make it clear that this story is about so much more than just Lucille, because your book opened my eyes to the years just after emancipation. I mean, I have to admit, I was naive to the difficulties uh, that freed slaves faced, like Lucille's parents. Absolutely. Let me just read an excerpt from your book. Slaves' optimistic dreams were met with frightening realities. Freed blacks were often homeless, with few possessions, often unable to find work, and thus unable to purchase sufficient food. Then diseases such as smallpox, against which they had no immunity and access to treatment, took their toll. Many people became dependent on the federal government for survival. In the face of all this, many emancipated slaves returned to the only secure place they had ever known. Meaning their masters. Yes. Meaning those plantations. Right. And some plantations disappeared and others uh, still survived a little bit and you got a job there or you got a job from someone who had bought the land nearby. But remember, while chattel slavery ended, they were still enslaved through the, the system of sharecropping. Mm -hmm. That was another form of slavery. They had to do certain things. They had to give certain things away. So you have to understand that slavery didn't really end. It just continued in another shape, another form. My goodness, that must have been such a painful reckoning for someone who thought of themselves as newly free. Yeah, it was. To, in fact, not be. But I suppose Lucille's parents, they were able to persevere. Yeah, and I think that they 
represent an amazing generation because they would become the middle class when they come to Colorado. It didn't take Lucille's family a long time, about 10 years before they were achieving middle class status and had earned certain rights in the state. Remarkable, though, given the odds against them, stacked against them. Telling Lucille's story also allows you to shed light on, on so much other black history in Colorado. I even hesitate to say black history. It's our collective history, of course. But you write about Dr. Justina Lorena Warren Ford. Mm-hmm. Who was she? She was the first uh, woman doctor, black woman doctor, to get licensed in the state. And she delivered lots of babies and also delivered the children of uh, Lucille's sisters. And, uh, you know, she was a marvelous woman and lived a great life here. Your book also taught me that the celebrated African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar spent time in Denver. He was the toast of the town. Yep. Uh, What brought him here? Uh, Tuberculosis. He was ill, and it was recommended he come here where he would be high altitude and treatment would be available. And he came, and uh, his poetry was such so magnificent, you know, that he became the shining star, and everyone wanted him in their living room to read poetry. White or black? Yes, yes. And he, in fact, his next book, uh, he dedicated to um, the person who owned Daniels and Fisher Department Store. Here in Denver. Here in Denver. The remnants of which is the May DNF Tower on the 16th Street Mall. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, back to Lucille. Her grandfather, I think on her mother's side, was a white slave owner. Yes. A testament to the fact that slaves weren't just there for labor, but often to satisfy the sexual desires of their owners. And I think this meant that Lucille had fair skin. You learned that later in life, Lucille professed a dislike of black people, of darker people. Yeah, that that was her trick bag. Uh, (laughs) uh, She was in a situation where she wanted to get out. She was in a nursing home. In a nursing home. She was removed from her home that her father built in the 1890s, which she lived in when she came back to Colorado in uh, the uh, 1949. And they didn't know she had arrangements that she had set forward her life. She had hired a white male to take her shopping, um, to take her to the doctor, uh, to do odd jobs around the house, cut the lawn, cut the trees, do all the work. Uh, she was like the reversal of driving Miss Daisy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the situation she lived under. And occasionally she would call the fire department when she heard a noise. But there was a reason for it because the kids next door were very no- lo- noisy. And as a result, that threw her off. So you think that this was a tool she used yes. to try to get out of the nursing home. But do you think as well that she had internalized some of the racism that she might have faced? I don't think so. Um, I don't read it that way. And the people that I interviewed that knew her didn't read it that way either. One of the things to recognize is that she was very much the other. I mean, I, I, let me back up. The reason I also went into this was that her middle name was Berkeley. And I couldn't understand why would an emancipated slave family give a surname to their firstborn daughter in Colorado in 1884. That led me to figure out Berkeley. Where's Berkeley? Plantation, Edmund Berkeley, father of her mother. And uh, found a fantastic letter that the mother wrote to her father. 
You never got to meet Lucille. She died in 1989. Right. And I'm always interested in the kind of relationship that develops between an author and the subject of a book who's deceased. I mean, how would you describe the connection that you feel to Lucille? Um, I think the uh, the connection is that I see myself in Lucille with the issues that she faced. She faced issues of racism no matter what, wherever she traveled. Um, and that was back over 100 years ago. You know, and today some of those same issues arise with me. So there was that connection. We haven't gotten over racism in this country. It's still part of the American character. So I, I saw that. I saw the issues that she faced, you know, in schools in terms of being sexism that she faced as a woman and a black woman. So she was double jeopardy. Um, and that indeed sort of made me think about myself a lot as I was going through this. As a woman of color. As a, a woman of color, yeah. On a college campus. Yeah. Uh, you did meet with the white side of Lucille's family. Yes. How was that? I mean, confronting the reality that their slave owner relative ha- had also sexually abused his slaves. Well, the first time I met with one, it was in a library. And she was related uh, through, um, again, marriage. And I said to her, excuse me, ma'am, but I'm doing this book and here's the situation. And she says, oh, no, 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 that's absolutely wrong. You're absolutely incorrect. And then a white male standing nearby said, come now, Tiki, you know that they used to go with the slaves. Um, And that sort of softened her. And she invited me to her home became my friend, sent me letters that she had. So it was that kind of thing. The last time I met with one was on the plantation of itself when I brought all the evidence to show the, to show the great, great, great granddaughter of Edmund Berkeley, the black side of her family. How'd that go? She never said she disagreed, but she never said she didn't. Oh. And it was a fantastic meeting on a plantation. You said at the beginning of our conversation that you're interested in telling history through the eyes of those who, who may not be celebrated, who may not be presidents or, or popes or, uh, you know, big figures that have lots of biographies written about them. You call that the idea of history from below. Yeah, which it comes out of a Marxist tradition of looking at history from below. And I, those, I, yeah. I understand you're working on a book about white people not well-known names, who stood up to Jim Crow-era racism. Yes, and that's called Invisible Protesters. And um, let me give you an example. Sure. Um, For example, um, it's hard to find the the data, so it takes a lot of effort and time because they never made the front page of a newspaper. Right. But here you have a young man by the name who's 20 years old, by the name of Howard Sheffield, and um, he considered himself a libertarian. Very interesting. And what happened is he took rotten tomatoes, a name, sorry, rotten eggs. 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 Even worse. Even worse. To the birth of a nation in New York City and began pelting it at the screen as it came up with the word rotten, rotten, rotten. And at that point, they arrested him. A black lawyer was in the audience and saw this and did not know him, went to to the jail with him, and then ended up defending him. These are the kinds of stories you are unearthing. A final question. We have about 30 seconds remaining. 
Is Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones's grave at Denver's Fairmont Cemetery still unmarked? It's marked now with her name. Okay. Yes. Do you hope to have something more there at some point? Well, there are two other relatives in in that same spot that's unmarked. Something you'd like her to change, relatives, I imagine? Yeah. Yes, something I'd like to work on. That is Polly Bugros McLean. She's an associate professor of media studies at CU Boulder. We spoke in November. Her latest book is Remembering Lucille, a Virginia family's rise from slavery and a legacy forged a mile high. It's a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. Winners will be announced next month. Finally, today, an update on a story we brought you earlier this week about lowering the voting age in school board elections. A bill that would have allowed 16 and 17-year-olds to cast ballots failed to make it out of committee yesterday. So the voting age in Colorado will remain 18 across the board. Thanks for spending time with us. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.